Hi, I'm Tammy Potter and welcome to the Pregnancy Process Podcast, a show designed to help you navigate the hugely transformative journey to motherhood, where you'll hear the unique experience of experts in this area and the incredible stories of women sharing their conception, pregnancy and postnatal journeys so that you can have a healthier, more informed pregnancy. In today's episode, I talk to childbirth attorney, author, and mother of three, Gina Mundi. After having spent over 20 years as legal counsel in legal baby cases, analyzing the decisions made during childbirth, spending thousands of hours meticulously scrutinizing cases, conducting interviews with delivery teams, and thoroughly examining medical records to gain in-depth understanding of every decision made during labor and delivery. Gina decided it was time to share her knowledge with families around the world so that they can experience a safer childbirth. Her book, A Parent's Guide to a Safer Childbirth, is a must read for all expecting parents as it contains some truly invaluable insights, which we discuss in great detail over this two-part podcast. In this episode, we cover the importance of having a baby advocate, why hospital choice is so important, and the recurring themes Gina uncovered surrounding hospitals when it comes to having a safer childbirth why learning about your baby's heart rate is one of the most important things you can do when expecting, and some things to look out for if you're considering an epidural. Gina, thank you so much for your time today. It is fantastic to have you here with us. I know it's so early over in America. For those of you at home, it's like 3 a.m. in America with Gina on here. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Tammy, for having me. I'm excited. I know, same. I'm excited as well. And you know what? Your book, I absolutely loved. And in the most kind of humble way possible, I thought that I you knew a reasonable amount about birth and pregnancy and all that type of thing. But your book blew me away. It looks at things from a completely different perspective. And I genuinely think that all expecting parents should read it. So if you are an expecting parent, get amongst that book. But I think an important place to start, and I don't know, maybe it's just me being a little bit skeptical, (laughs) naturally. I I think it's hard not to be a little bit skeptical about a childbirth attorney who works for the hospitals writing a book about birth. Do you mind if we start there and talk a little bit about your motivation for writing this book? Oh, absolutely. And Tammy, thank you for your kind words. I spent a lot of time writing that book. It was 14 months, thousands of hours, because I do have a different perspective on childbirth. It's a perspective that will help parents have a healthy baby. So when I hear these kind words, I'm like, okay, It was worth the 14 months, thousands of hours away from normal life. But basically, I just want your audience to understand what a childbirth case is. Mm -hmm. During the birth of a child, something goes wrong and baby's not born healthy or baby will pass away during childbirth or mom will pass away during childbirth. So I've spent now almost 21 years on these cases as the childbirth attorney coming in and finding out what happened, what went wrong, and more importantly, what should have been done so the parents could have had a healthy baby. So that's just my job in general. So just so everybody understands my perspective and where I'm coming from. But as you just said, yeah, I'm the attorney for the hospital, for the delivery team. Basically, what happened is after it was about 19 years into it, and we had a near family tragic event. So I had a niece who was pregnant with our first child of the next generation. It's the introduction to the book, so I know you read it. But she had a really scary birth, and we went about 20 minutes not knowing if the baby was going to be okay. Now, that day that the baby was born, I was far away. I was 1,100 miles from Sam that day, which is in the book. But during that whole event, it just stopped me in my tracks. It took me out of the grind. It took me out of my legal analysis. Because obviously when something went wrong, I started doing my whole legal analysis as a childbirth attorney on just what just happened. But then I stepped back and I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, this is how the families feel in my cases. Because when I say the baby's not born 
healthy. The baby's permanently not healthy. I don't think I need to get into the details. So it's that very first moment. We were very lucky. We got word that the baby was going to be okay after 20 minutes or so. But during those minutes, you're just like, this is how the family feels. And it was just, it was an awful feeling because no decision now is going to change. Change would just happen. So really, you can just sit there and you can hope and pray. And that's it. And it was such a scary feeling. So I had this almost like, human experience where I'm just like, oh my goodness. And it took me to my kids. I have three kids. And I can tell you how my kids would be ready for childbirth, given what I've done and what I've seen over the 21 years. The way I prepare my kids is way different than a family would traditionally prepare for childbirth. So then I'm like, wait a minute, what if I'm 1100 miles away from my kids on the day they give birth to my grandkids. I'm like, I got to start writing this stuff down. And I'll tell you, the minute I went from attorney to author with the purpose of making sure I have healthy grandkids and then going, wait a minute, this is really good information. And so then it was like, wait a minute, I got to get this out there and I got to help other families. So no, it's just the human side of me. I mean, I'm a mom, I'm a wife. If I did think the delivery teams were doing anything really bad or on purpose, or as you read in the book, there might be situations where a delivery, a labor and delivery unit's crazy busy. So mom's just not getting the attention she needs. There's certain circumstances like that. But just going back to the story and, and why I wrote it, I'm just a human. I'm just a mom. Yeah, I've seen a lot. It started with my kids. And I just know that Obviously, now if parents read this book, they're gonna it's going to help them have a healthy baby. And in the end, if I can spare some of these families from what I've seen, it would mm -hmm. be just absolutely amazing. And actually, I know my book will do that. I'll never know who it is, but I know that it's going to help them. And just as a human and as a mom, that's it's a good feeling. Absolutely. And I have to ask, I have one more question around this. I think only one more question around this, but, and again, this may be me coming back to that skeptical kind of side of me. I did have a question when I was reading the book in the back of my mind as I was reading it. And that was, and I don't know, maybe someone else reading the book might be wondering the same. So I think it's important to ask this question because there's a lot of, there's so much amazing information in your book. And I don't want to take away from that because your book is incredible and I loved reading it. And there's so many amazing action points in there as well. But there is one thing that I do really want to ask, and that's around if someone reads your book and actions all of the points in there, and we'll talk about some of these in greater detail, but would someone doing all these things and having all these conversations with the doctor and having read the book, would this change the outcome in court if something, heaven forbid, were to happen? Would the responsibility be more on the parent because they were more involved in the decision-making process? Or would there even be a case if something went wrong and they were using all of the action points in your book? Well, that's an excellent question. I've never been asked that before. Listen, every single labor and delivery is different. If it's a case that an attorney is taking on and it's going to court, because there are medical professionals that believe the doctor made a bad recommendation. So listen, parents, they're still parents. While my book gives them a bunch of great information to make good decisions, they're still the doctor who can be professionally liable for giving a bad recommendation and the parent follows it. So you have my book to help you make those good decisions because in my cases, families are one decision or mere minutes from a healthy baby. So these decisions are huge. So if a doctor gives you a very bad recommendation or maybe they don't give you a recommendation that they should be at a certain point in time, then that's where they can be liable if something goes wrong. So I don't think my book would not, I don't, my book would not come into, into play if there was a bad recommendation by a doctor and, and the family was like, okay, I'll do what you say, doctor. And something went wrong. My, my book shouldn't come into play in a court case like that. Right. I guess that's probably my naivety in what childbirth cases actually 
pertain, right? So I was like, I wonder if this would make any changes. So thank you. That really made sense. Like I've said, I've read your book and I loved it. And you mentioned a lot in the book how important it is to have something called a baby advocate. Can you describe from your perspective what the role of a baby advocate would play at the birth? So baby advocate is like a second set of eyes on you and baby. So listen, mm-hmm. you have husband there. You can't have grandma, soon to be grandma. You may have your best friend. You may have your aunt, whoever it is. And they're excited. Everybody's excited. Baby's coming. So I, I think it's very important to, hey, you're going to be there. You're just as excited as me. I'm just going to give you a job because as pregnant mom, I need to focus on physically and mentally delivering this baby. So in the book, chapter seven, I wrote baby advocate and what that is. And basically they can help communicate with the delivery team. They can sit and help you with decision-making and whatnot. But I think the most important part of that chapter is the end. And that's where I'm like, okay, I recommend a baby advocate. And here is what your baby advocate needs to know. And this is how you need to prepare your baby advocate. But it's like you're giving them a job. So if you have somebody starting a new job, are you just going to stick them on there with no training? No. Well, you have my book now. So now you can give them an official job, read this, and they should be able to then work with you just to make sure that you stay calm. So let's say you're not a fan of your nurse, which happens. Listen, I love labor and delivery nurses. I think they're amazing people. But like in every profession, got some bad apples. So if you have a bad apple labor and delivery nurse as mom in labor, you should be able to look at your advocate and be like out with the nurse. And then you go back to what you need to do because you're going to be focusing. You're going to be like working through contractions, sitting in weird you know, position, whatever you need to do and let them handle it. So it goes just over what an advocate can do. But having that second set of eyes on baby is just absolutely absolutely huge because listen, your delivery team, especially if you walk into a busy unit, they're running hard, they're running thin. So just having that somebody else keeping an eye on baby, baby's heart rate or helping you communicate will just help everything go more smoothly. It's amazing that you just mentioned getting rid of say a nurse that you're not, I don't know, vibing with, shall we say, because (laughs) It's really clear how with that whole fear, tension, pain cycle and the people around you at your birth can actually stall your birth and stop it from progressing. So something that you may think wouldn't be that important, like maybe you're not vibing with the nurse, actually having someone that can step in and say, actually, this isn't helping. Can we maybe swap them out for someone else can have such a significant difference in the in how the birth is progressing. Now, you just mentioned something there, which is probably a perfect segue into our next question, and that's around hospital choice and having an awareness around a number of factors, which were, again, another recurring theme in your book. And there were a few that really stood out for me, and one of them was talking about the labour and delivery unit being really busy. Why is this so significant? Well, listen, babies come when babies want to come. So that's what you have to realize as an expecting parent. So a busy labor and delivery unit can happen like that. And what's important about that is obviously they're running hard and they're running thin. And you're just not going to get the attention that you may need at that point in time, especially if there might be concerns about the baby. I talk about in the book, a very in general case, but just to give like an example, there was a, one case where a mom came in and they got her in a room. They started the fetal heart rate monitor and there were concerns about the baby. They mm-hmm. did some testing, some intervention, but it was a very busy day on the unit and they were reassured enough to where they left mom in the room. Well, mom, dad, grandparents, everybody's in the room and the baby's heart rate stops graphing. And the family does not, they would have, they didn't, my book was not around, but this is a lesson that we can learn from a case, for instance. But if they had known the importance of the baby's heart rate, when there's a concern about your baby, the best way to tell how your baby is doing is their heart rate. 
Baby is inside you. The doctor cannot just physically assess baby. Like a doctor can physically assess mom. A doctor can look at mom and say, you don't look good. What's up? You're swollen. You're green. Whatever it is, they talk, they communicate. There's a diagnosis, everything. They try to work with a plan to fix everything. It's different with baby. So they knew something was wrong with baby, but the doctor can't look at baby and say, okay, or communicate. So they got to rely on the heart rate. Now, the, I had one doctor testify, you probably remember this from the book, because I did include it, but the, the doctor testified that the best way that, or the only way that a baby can talk to the doctor is through their heart rate. So it's extremely important. I really emphasize that in my book, because I can look at a baby's heart rate and I can tell you, is that baby a rock star or is that baby struggling? And mm -hmm. I even go through, listen, and this is how you can tell it too. So point being, back to the story or the case the baby's heart rate stops graphing and the family does not understand the importance of having that heart rate graph when there's concerns about the baby and you have a busy delivery team helping other patients. So the heart rate monitor stopped graphing. Later on, a nurse came in and was like, oh, we lost the baby's heart rate. Let me get it back. Tried to put the monitor back on and they couldn't find the baby's heart rate. They got the doctor involved and the doctor brought in an ultrasound and confirmed that Basically, the baby had passed away on the unit. So it's very important. And that's where like a baby advocate would come in. Because in that chapter, for instance, it does say baby advocate has to understand the importance of a fetal monitor and understand that that's how we figure out how it's the best way for us to figure out how baby's doing. And this is what they need to know about it. So it's important because understanding what a busy labor and delivery unit means, because that means that you're going to have to work with your delivery team because they're not going to have eyes on you the whole time. And then in terms of picking a hospital, I mean, listen, with a busy labor and delivery unit or not, I mean, it just every hospital experiences this at some point in time, because maybe a different level of the hospital, they have a surgical center, for instance, where they just do knee surgeries. Well, they're going to be able to schedule those knee surgeries at this different spot in the hospital at 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever it is, they staff accordingly, everyone's fine. Labor and delivery units are not like that. No, they're definitely not. And another thing that you mentioned in your book that I'd like to talk about when it comes to hospitals, because we're definitely going to get onto heart rate because that's a big topic. And I really want to talk about that, especially being a strength coach, but shift changes, whereas another thing that you mentioned in your book. So can we just talk about why that's so important? In my cases, I saw that pretty early on because when there's a shift change, then that's a whole nother shift of witnesses. So that was always big to me, right? Because when you're working up a case or who you're going to have to produce for a deposition or who's going to go to trial, you would have like tip, you have one team or you have two teams. And so many of my cases have two teams. And I'm like, all right, shift change. So basically when you have a shift change like this, you have a new set of eyes coming to see you. And I think those, a lot of times, you have the old set of eyes leaving after a 12-hour shift, and you have a new set of eyes that are can be maybe a little bit gung-ho or, all right, let's do this. They're fresh. They're ready to go. They just got up or whatever. And they will do different things or interventions, and they may be like, hmm. But then also, so that's probably the main thing is you just have a new delivery team. Because I think what your audience needs to realize, and, and it's really hopefully clear in my book, that different doctors have different recommendations and different management styles. So same with the nurses, they're all different. So in a case, I have a childbirth case and I have to retain medical experts, whether it's a nurse, a doctor, but I'll re let's say I retain two OBGYN doctors and they're experts. So they need to look at the case, they look at the medical records, and they look at the care that mom received and they have to tell me, is this good care or bad care? And I'll have one OBGYN tell me this is good care and another one tell me this is bad care. And then I'll have a nurse come in. A nurse will look at the same care and or more than one nurse and same thing. They never agree on anything. And one nurse and then the nurses will start saying the doctors did everything wrong or the doctors would be like the nurses did everything. So they are critical against their own profession. And then there are other vice versa, nurses, doctors, doctors, nurses. So they're all over the board on how they manage somebody. So somebody may come in and maybe be more aggressive or different. And I really think that's probably the biggest thing with the shift change 
Um, but I think as parents, as an expecting parent, it's really important to understand different doctors, different opinions. And those, my cases are everybody, no one ever agrees on anything. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say nothing, but there are just, I'm constantly, let's say I'm preparing a case for trial. So that means I have to put witnesses up on a stand. One of the very first things that I do with a case is go through what all the experts said. And then I point out, I make charts on how their opinions are different. So then that way it helps as one takes the stand, it almost helps to then, I'm like, well, this person from the, this expert from the same side of the case said this, but you would agree, you would disagree with that, wouldn't you? Because that's not your opinion in this case, but it's almost a way to like discredit the experts on the stand in mm. front of a jury, because most people don't understand how different their opinions are. And again, I guess that goes into the reasons why it's so important to have your baby advocate and be as knowledgeable as possible about all of the really important key factors like heart rate, heart rate variability, all that type mm -hmm. of thing. So when there are shift changes like this, then nothing falls through the cracks, I suppose, or if someone has a differing yep. opinion, you actually have some knowledge to fall back on in case you don't agree with it or it's different to what the other doctor was saying. But then I guess at the same time, it gives you the opportunity to maybe, if you weren't really sure about the path one doctor was taking, if it shift changes, you can maybe get a different opinion, I suppose. So there's always positives and negatives to it. This is actually really important. I should have included this. So early in my career, I was very confused on why there were such different opinions. And I would take the deposition of an expert early on in my mm -hmm. cases because of these difference of opinions. And I was very confused on why there were so many different opinions. And I would ask the doctor, why do you have such a strong opinion about this certain subject, but this other doctor completely agrees with you? And that, in most of the time, the doctors were like, the other doctor is absolutely wrong. They're basically crazy. And I'm like, what? So going back now as the patient, if you have a disagreement with your doctor, they may look at you like you have no idea what you're talking about because that's the way they even treat their colleagues sometimes. So it's really important that you understand that if you have a different opinion than your doctor there may be another doctor out there where your your opinions line up a lot better. And it's really important to make sure you do find that right doctor. But there's so many times they're like, no, the other doctor is just wrong. They have no idea what they're talking about. But then I would ask the other doctor, and that's what they would say about the other doctor that just said that about them. It very Now it's very second nature. I just understand that they have different opinions. So sometimes I'll approach it with like, hey, if I'm talking, are there two schools of thought? Is there anybody who may think differently than you? Whether you agree with it or not, are there two schools of thought? Okay, there are two schools of thought, but what's your, okay, now give me your opinion based upon your knowledge, training, and experience. So basically, if a doctor does not agree with you, do not, under any circumstances, think that you are wrong. Mm. And I, just, I wish that even before going into having children, people knew about all this stuff because like you were saying, there are doctors out there that would be more aligned with your values and all that type of thing. And if you knew all this stuff when you were out there looking for an obstetrician or a doctor or a nurse or whatever, your healthcare provider, and you already knew all this type of thing beforehand, then it would make sure that you're so much more aligned with your healthcare providers. So I wish people knew this stuff before they fell pregnant. Maybe in the conception period, they started <laughs> doing all this research rather than leaving it till later. But I really want to talk about heart rate because being a strength coach who is obsessed with my own heart rate yeah. <laughs> and heart rate variability, and I track it all the time. Uh -huh. I found the section of your book on heart rate monitoring absolutely fascinating. And if we can, I'd like to talk through some key points of heart rate monitoring, but especially regarding minimal variability and decelerations, as these were really fascinating to me. So what makes them so important when it comes to heart rate? 
We better tell them what variability is. So listen, next to your bed, well, we'll tell them about the fetal heart rate. Next to your bed, mm-hmm. the baby's heart rate graphs. Mm-hmm. And it looks like just, it should look like a straighter line that's just quickly. So your variability are the fluctuations going up and down. So there's a line and then you'll see it goes up, down, up, down. So if it's going up and down just minimally, that could be the baby sleeping. But you've got to look at what else is going on with it. So your baby's heart rate should stay relatively straight. It'll go up a little bit. It'll accelerate for like maybe 15 seconds. That's excellent. That's called an acceleration. As baby lawyers, we love accelerations because that means that your baby is most likely well oxygenated, which is very important. You want a well oxygenated birth or baby. Because you know, birth is tough on babies. So Mm -hmm. if you have your baby's heart rate and it keeps dipping down, so you have a baseline. So your baby, you'll have this like normal range baseline. And again, this is in the book. It's and I try to describe it as simple as possible. But if the baby's heart rate keeps dipping down, then your the delivery team should be like, hmm. Because usually if the heart rate's dipping down, baby is struggling inside for some reason. So you have, for instance, a contraction. So a contraction actually, I don't think most people realize this, squeezes a baby and stops the oxygen to the baby. Listen, completely normal. Babies are meant to handle contractions. It's okay. They're made for contractions. So do not freak out when you hear this. But I've had doctors explain it, and so I explained it in the book. When you have a contraction, they're like, think about it. It's like when you go underwater, like that'd be like during the contraction, contraction releases or goes down, stops, and it's like coming up for air. So if you, for instance, you look at the bottom of the graph and you'll be able to see your contractions, but if you see your contractions are going up, that means everything's squeezing down on baby right there. And if baby's heart rate starts dropping in response, that means baby doesn't like contractions. Now that happens a lot during labor when there's Pitocin and mom's being induced because those are like artificial contractions. And if the drug is making mom contract too much. That might be, babies might be like, ah, stop. You know, so then there's ways that the delivery team knows how to respond and so forth. But yeah, decelerations are really important because that could be a sign that baby is struggling. So then if you have a baby's heart rate, who which keeps dropping, the variability that goes up and down is what's slowing down. Then that would be, and again, this is all explained in more detail in the book. I think if I explain in too much detail without a graph or something, it might be confusing. But yeah, that'd be something that your delivery team should be addressing. But it's just simple things like that, that if parents know, a baby advocate knows. But if that delivery team's busy, they may not see what's going on. And you can be like, call button, nurse's station. Hey, we're having some decelerations. And I noticed that the baby's heart rate variability is, it's not really good right now. Maybe there's no accelerations. You don't see any times where the baby's heart rate's going up. So yeah, those are important. And I'll tell you as a baby lawyer, the first thing I learned was how to read a baby's heart rate. I don't know what's up with the medical community, but they definitely want to leave the baby's heart rate to their interpretation. And I am like, listen, I'm a non-medical person and I learned how to, I learned how to read the baby's heart rate in an hour. So it's very important. It is not hard. It might look, when you look at it initially, and you may have to read my chapter twice, but by the end of that chapter, if you focus on it, you're going to understand how to look at your baby's heart rate and determine whether your baby's doing great during labor or starting to struggle. And that's when decisions start need to be made depending on what's going on with your individual labor. And I also feel like what you're mentioning before in terms of pushing the call button, if you can see things happening, I'm certain that you will be taken or your birth path, your birth would be taken a lot more seriously if you or your baby advocate was sitting there actually watching what was going on and having a a reasonable understanding around what's going on on that heart rate monitor and contacting them if they see things which aren't consistent to what they know to be right in their knowledge as a lay person. Oh yeah. No, I had a labor and delivery nurse before I published my book, go through it. 
Because you can remember a labor and delivery nurse, they're your bedside. They're with you, like most of your labor. They're the first line of communication to your doctor. It's their eyes that are supposed to be staring at the baby's heart rate. But anyway, I had her go through my book and she was like, I remember that phone call. She went through my book and then she was like, okay, let's talk. And I'm like, I hold my breath. I'm like, hello. And she's like, Gina, if moms just knew this stuff before they came in for childbirth, my job would be so much easier. I mean, she is the biggest promoter of my book because it. she's like, if parents would know this, she's like, oh my goodness, we could just easily work together. Life would be great. So yeah, they're going to take you more seriously. And here's the deal. You're going to speak their language. There is like a lingo to labor and delivery. So if you can speak their language, oh yeah, more streamlined communication, more direct. They're going to respect you. They're going to be respect the fact that you're prepared. You're ready to go. And I've had other labor and delivery nurses. I was on Instagram and I was tagged in a post and I'm like, what's this? And it was another labor and delivery nurse. And she was like, everybody must read this book. So she's out there on Instagram trying to get everybody to read this book because the same thing, it's going to make her job a lot easier. And she knows that if people read this book, there's going to be more healthy babies because they're well, going to be, be more understanding. It's going to be more cohesive, more understanding. Mm -hmm. People would be talking the same language and they won't be having to explain things on the fly. If something is going wrong and they need to try and explain it, it takes away that time and communication. So rather than having to explain what a deceleration is or what's wrong with minimal heart rate variability, they're already prepared. So they can be like, if they see it or you see it, they can be like, okay, your baby's heart rate is decelerating too much. And you'd be like, oh, okay. I know that that's serious. Or we're mm -hmm. seeing minimal variability. Oh, okay. I know what that means. Rather than then in the heat of the moment, having to actually communicate and try to explain in detail what that means and why it's so important and the next steps based on that. So almost if there is an issue, it means it, it takes away that explanation time and it's, it's the process, I suppose. Mm. Oh, 100%. Because listen, if there's concerns about your baby, it is not concern, of ba concern for baby C-section. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. When there's a concern for the baby, it's test and intervention time. Okay, can we improve the situation? Is baby on the cord? Because again, baby's inside you, so we don't really know their environment in there. And I can tell you, and if it's after the after mom's water broke, that changes my, that changes the whole environment. So they'll do tests and interventions, like okay, do we need to do a C-section? Do we not? Can we fix this and whatnot? So it's a process, one hundred percent. And I talk about this in the book, but it's a process. Mm -hmm. And babies and families and doctor, everybody gets into trouble when that process takes too long. So if you can intervene and you can understand what your team is saying and you can make quick decisions together, it's, it's absolutely huge. Like I just explained at the beginning of the podcast, these families are minutes from a healthy baby, minutes. minutes. So minutes. it is so important to have a good idea and understanding so you can move quick with your delivery team. Because as mom, you are the decision maker. No one can do anything without your consent. There's no C-section. There's no put you on your side, start oxygen, IV, nothing. They can't do anything. So they have to sit and explain it to you. So yeah, now you get it because you read my book and it's going to be like, go, go, go. If, if that's what you need, because again, my book, my book's not so much about what can go wrong. It's how to make sure it goes right. Absolutely. And there's action points that it's very clear. I'm a huge fan. Don't you worry. I'll be telling everyone to read that book. But a few other things about the heart rate monitoring and that type of thing, mostly around internal heart rate monitoring, Chris, I know that you're super pro internal heart rate monitoring and in terms of this and I, I, there is this is going to be a bit of a long-winded question but we know that mothers who are able to be really active participants in their births by moving around and changing positions have better births and how do you balance the two when internal heart rate monitoring essentially leaves the mum immobile like on and on her back, which we also know delays 
labor. And interestingly, just before I came onto the podcast today, I was reading a study about the use of a fit ball during labor can almost reduce the labor time by almost three hours. I think it was 179 minutes to be exact, but you know, that's a lot. And when you think about that, and the, the reduction in the stress and fatigue on both mum and baby by using something like that where they can move around. How do we balance the two between internal heart rate monitoring, which is gold standard, and external heart rate monitoring, which allows the mum to be a little bit more free with her movement and not lying down? From my perspective, I would look at it and be like, okay, would you be better to go external heart rate monitor? And then if there were concerns, go to internal. What do you think about that? I love your perspective. Mm -hmm. So if there's any concerns about baby, you need to move to internal monitor. This is a huge issue in my cases. So basically there's a new there's three types of monitors. There's the external one where just that big belt that goes over your belly. Then there's the internal. And just so parents understand, internal kind of connects to the baby, basically your baby's scalp. There's a wire in, be- your wire in between your legs that goes to a machine. Like your baby is like literally hardwired to a, to a machine, but it is by far the most accurate way to determine how your baby is doing and then there's this other one it's called the monica and it's wireless but you know it's funny because people have said that in the reviews too that i'm really pro internal and i'm like i try to make it as objective as possible and leave out my opinions on it but apparently they shine through and again it's because of what i've seen in my cases because a lot of Doctors will come in and be be like, hey, they should have put an internal in. Had they done that, they could have seen that this baby was struggling and delivered the baby earlier and the baby would be completely healthy. So you got to remember, I've been hearing this for over 21 years. And again, my perspective, because of what I've seen, it can be like a lot different. I do like yours for sure. If you're a low risk patient, your baby seems to be doing just fine. There are no concerns about the baby's heart rate. Yeah, do a wireless and and go ahead and walk around. But any concerns, whatnot, you gotta you gotta move because a baby typically does not just crash. So usually you have like it starts minimal variability. Now after the water breaks, I'll tell you, and we can talk about this the water breaking later issue. But after the water breaks, now sometimes I will see a baby crash just because again their environment changes, and you gotta remember placenta umbilical cord that's their lifeline that's chilling in the uterus with them so when you take out their fluid you break the water it can change inside and something may happen so back to internal versus wireless that's probably my main issue so here's the deal with a wireless monitor so you can walk around you can go up to 100 feet away from your bed so yeah that's great but if your baby gets into trouble the wireless monitor will just really more or less start dropping the signal. So then your baby's heart rate will just stop graphing versus show that your baby's in trouble. So we've had a number of cases here in the United States where basically that's what happens. The baby gets in trouble, the monitor is wireless, and instead of showing that baby's in trouble, it drops the heart rate, Nobody knows what it is. Well, it's a wireless monitor with Bluetooth technology. So what does everyone start doing? They start troubleshooting the monitor while baby starts getting into bigger trouble and nobody knows. And then finally, they'll figure it out. And unfortunately, in all of these cases, the baby babies passed away. In those cases, had an internal monitor been used, then they would have been able to detect that the baby was in trouble and they would have moved quick and gotten baby delivered. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's hard. It's everybody's individual labor preferences and whatnot. But I do, I'm definitely on board with, sure, if everything's hunky-dory, everything seems great, walk around, do all your great stuff. But if you have some concerns about the baby, 
you really want to know, especially given, again, given the outcome in my cases of just, it's a difference of a few minutes. So mm -hmm. it's, it's important to understand how your baby's doing. This would be a question for a doctor, not you, but it's almost <laughs> like, could you put it on? And then if everything's great, you can like, then just take it off again. I don't know. <laughs> you I mean, could. I mean, usually if it's on, it's on. Mm. Uh, I'll say that. They usually don't take them back off. <laughs> I will say that. But could you? Sure. Yeah, you Maybe. could. I mean, they'll probably be like, we're going to take it off. And we're probably not going to put it back on. Or we will if you want us to. But they might raise their eyebrows at you. Probably. Um, <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time someone raised their eyebrows at one of my requests. <laughs> <laughs> now, just in terms of that, because like with you being pro internal heart rate, and I just think it's the same as me. Obviously, it's different because you work with such severe outcomes and such sad, difficult outcomes. We will err on the side of caution because of what we've seen. It's the same as me when it comes to training during pregnancy because I've seen the outcomes. I've seen what it does to women's bodies if they don't train correctly and all that type of thing. So I think when you are exposed to this type of thing on a day-in, day-out basis, it does make you more aware and err on the side of caution because you know what the other side of not being cautious is or what the risks are, mm -hmm. I suppose. But in the kind of realm of heart rate, because we've talked about breaking waters and there is a segue into the next topic here. And there's talk about epidural in your book. And mm -hmm. I think you mentioned in there somewhere, if there were concerns about your baby's heart rate, it might be advisable to consider skipping the epidural. Why would that be? Epidurals typically extend uh, labor. So listen, mm. If your baby's struggling, I mean, it's labor is really hard on babies. Again, they're meant to handle it, but if they're struggling, you just get the baby out. An epidural will typically just extend how long it takes. And then if you have an epidural, sometimes then baby may, you may not be able to push effectively. So then that's where I think in the book, in that chapter, I talk about operative deliveries, which is vacuum forceps, like baby may need to get to that point and be like, all right. And then they got to pull in the um, forceps or the vacuum. But yeah, if you can skip the epidural and remember moms are lucky contractions are, as we just talked about, contractions are not only hard on mom, mom has that significant pain. Well, baby doesn't get any oxygen. So, but Mom can get an epidural to relieve the pain. Baby, no, baby's just still dealing with what they have to deal with through a contraction. So yeah, no, baby's struggling. If you can do it, and I highly recommend it, skip the epidural. They are really common practice in birth. And mm -hmm. we've talked already about why having a baby advocate is so important. Why is it so important to make sure that they're there when they're having the epidural? If you, if you are having one. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So some hospitals, they may be starting to practice where during an epidural procedure, they want everybody out of the room. I would highly recommend that your baby advocate stay in the room during an epidural. So basically an epidural goes into the epidural space and that's why it's called an epidural and you're back. You hunch over, boom goes into your epidural space and that should numb you so you can't feel your contractions. However, sometimes those epidurals may go into your bloodstream or whatnot. So it's very important to have that second set of eyes on you because sometimes they should be monitoring you after an epidural. That would be ideal. So it's just important that your baby advocate stay in there just to make sure everything is fine after the epidural that it is in your epidural space, that it's not in your bloodstream. And again, they're not the doctor. The doctor and the nurse should realize this and understand that. But just to, it's a surgical procedure. So it's really important that, I shouldn't say surgical procedure, um, but it is an important procedure that you do want somebody there just in case something happens. Mm, absolutely. And just in terms of people performing the epidural, how do you feel about residents performing epidurals? 
Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I'm getting, I read my Amazon reviews, right? And my latest, so everybody's mad about, I think that the attending anesthesiologist should do the epidural. So again, my kids, my grandkids were prepared differently than a normal traditional family, but I'm not going to have residents practicing placing an epidural on my kids who are about to give birth to my grandkids if they want an epidural. That's just me. I want an anesthesia that's board certified attending. So yeah, in that chapter, I'm like epidurals and do not practice on me. But yeah, I'm totally getting hit with that on my reviews. And then there are, there are CRNAs that also in a lot of hospitals don't have anesthesiologists. The CRNAs do it. Mm. <laughs> I'm getting hit, hit on the reviews for that one. But that's the thing. I'm like, listen, this is what I would do as a childbirth attorney. And this is what I would choose and want for my kids. But yeah, I I like just the anesthesiologist. Now, there might be some really good CRNAs out there that do this. And that's great. And you could talk to your doctor about it, make sure they're very experienced. And they might be great CRNAs who are very capable of placing an epidural. So yeah. So I guess- that's something that you would have a conversation with your healthcare providers about before going into your birth. If you were looking to have an epidural that was on your birth plan to discuss who it would be Mm -hmm. actually performing the epidural and making sure that you're comfortable and confident with the person that would be doing it. Right. That's absolutely the point. Here's the deal. Just make sure it's not a person in training. That's let them practice on somebody else. That makes me too nervous. Now, when it comes to birth, there are a few common words that you hear all the time. That'd be like C-section, induction, induction, epidural. Can we talk about the common links between induction and epidural? Or more precisely, when it comes to legal baby cases, why is it so common in these cases for mums to have received an epidural during an induction, or more specifically, a Pitocin induction? And we may wrap up pretty soon after this because I feel like the Pitocin thing's a whole other story. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. So we'll leave your audience with this. So Mm. chapter 11 of my book goes over the most common facts and issues in a legal baby case. So this is what I see the most in my baby cases. And by far, the number one most common fact and issue in a legal baby case is Pitocin. When I get a new case in, the first words I typically read are, mom is being induced with Pitocin. So basically, I have seen the Pitocin inductions gone wrong. I have researched this drug extensively. I have been across the United States talking to delivery teams about this drug. I mean, you name it. I I know way too much about Pitocin. And I think that's what you're probably referring to chapter 14, where then I went on to write a chapter on how to have a safe Pitocin induction. Now, listen, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, different doctors, different management. So some doctors may read chapter 14 and be like, duh, this is what I do. Perfect. You have a good doctor. Congratulations. Other doctors may be like, what? So this is what I've seen. So if my kids want a Pitocin induction, this is what I would tell them, and this is how I would want it done, and what I would want them to realize before they made that decision. Now, it's important to understand that, very similar to Sam's story, my niece, when she, we didn't talk about this, but it's in the book, when she walked in that day to labor and delivery, there were concerns about the baby. She was only 38 weeks at that point. So they're like, listen, you need to have the baby. Here's your two options C section, Pitocin induction. Well, she didn't want either, and she wasn't ready for either. She just wanted to go naturally. Well, that wasn't an option anymore for her. So it's very important that even if you do not want a Pitocin induction, you still have a good idea of what it is, because if that's you walking into the hospital and there's a couple of concerns, 
they're not just going to sit, let you sit at the hospital and go naturally. Well, maybe they would, but highly unlikely. You're going to actually want to get your baby out of that environment if there is something wrong. So that's where Pitocin is going to come into play. So every single expecting parent should read chapter 14. So they understand that if this option is offered, this is how you can do it safely. Because I can tell you, with the delivery teams, the doctors, I'm very known for saying, I don't like Pitocin. And the doctors are always like, Gina, it's fine. And I'm like, okay, but it's in all of my cases. So, but I get it. Sometimes that's necessary because the only other option is major abdominal surgery. So I'm, I get it. But this is what you need to know to make sure that you have a safe induction and that nothing happens to baby. Amazing. Now, I would normally finish with asking you a specific question. And I feel like we're not quite finished yet because I've got so many more questions for you. My last question would normally be what the one thing that you wish all mothers knew before having a baby. But I feel like that is your book. <laughs> so like, I feel like the answer to that question would be read the book. <laughs> well, I can tell you that. No, that's a great I can still answer that one because we haven't talked about it yet. And I do think it's really important. So the first chapter of my book mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are all of the lessons from the baby cases. So that one is so incredibly important because they're lessons, right? They're what we can learn from these baby cases to make sure this doesn't happen in the future. So that chapter is so incredibly important that I actually have it on my website at ginamundi.com and they can download it for free. So that one, that's chapter one of my book. Now, just so you understand how my book is designed is that each one of those lessons is then a subsequent chapter. And that's where I tell you how to make it go right. But even if parents just understand these lessons, they're going to be so much more ready for childbirth than, than I can get into. Mm, amazing. Gina, thank you so much for your time today. And I know that we have a whole other episode waiting for us. <laughs> yes, I'm looking forward to part two for sure. Pitocin. So thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me and I'm looking forward to part two. And if you're hearing this message, I want to say a huge Thank you, because it means that you've listened to this entire episode. Of course, if you have any questions about the things that we covered in this episode, or want to know more about me or my other projects, you can find me on YouTube and Instagram at The Pregnancy Process. For those currently in their conception or pregnancy journey, you can actually apply to join my complimentary but private community, The Preggy Training Crew and you'll find my community application and social media links in the episode description. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, I absolutely encourage you to share it with other women just like you. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.